You can go have a seat. Good morning, Harvest. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. And uh, as Carlos said earlier, uh, whether you're joining us in person or tuning in online, we are so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. We do have a gift for you. If this is your first time, uh, find somebody wearing a lanyard and uh, connect with them, and we've got something for you. But we are just so thankful that you are here with us. So let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles or your phones or whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me once again in the book of Jonah? Uh, We're in Jonah chapter 3 this morning on week number 3 out of 4 in our series through the book of Jonah called Jonah, A Story of God's Grace. And so far we've seen Jonah running from grace. We've seen him praying for grace. And finally this morning in Jonah chapter 3, we're going to see him uh, proclaiming the grace that he was praying for and then he'd been running from. And so Jonah chapter 3 this morning, even if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, would love for you to be able to follow along with us. There's a couple ways you could do that. You could just Google Jonah 3 ESV uh, on uh, a phone and it'll pop up for you. Or we've got some Bibles in the back uh, that we would love for you to, to use or even just take with you if you don't have a Bible at all. Uh, I want to encourage us all to keep praying for the team in the Dominican Republic that's uh, been there since Sometime on Tuesday, early morning, they left in the middle of the night, like Monday night. Uh, they'll be getting back late this coming Monday night. Uh, but just keep praying for them. Pastor Dan is, is preaching there right now, like literally right now. And he'll be preaching again this afternoon at 4 p.m. Uh, they had a great... Uh, time doing a discipleship conference for pastors uh, yesterday with over 60 pastors from the Dominican Republic in attendance. So continue to pray for them for, uh, for safety, for strength, for, for sustaining, uh, and that God would continue to move there as he is working uh, among the team and, uh, and among the people of Dominican Republic. But Jonah chapter 3 this morning, and I do want us to just go ahead and pause and pray for our time together in God's Word again this morning, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, we uh, do come before you as a people so in need of your grace. We are thankful for your cross. We praise you for your cross. We praise you for your son who would come to die for us. We thank you for your grace. We are in so need of it. I pray for uh, Pastor Dan this morning as he is uh, preaching right now in the Dominican Republic that you would encourage him, that you'd be moving uh, and working there. And we also ask that you would be doing the same here Uh, You are a God that is not bound by time or space, and you are moving, and that is an amazing thing. And so uh, we need you here, uh, they need you there, and so would you meet uh, in both places to uh, encourage, to challenge, to convict by your word. But ultimately here this morning, Father, would you remind us of our own need for grace, and would you give us the urgency to proclaim that grace that we are so desperate in need of. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray, amen. Well, everybody loves a good comeback story. doesn't matter whether it's in sports or in movies or in someone's own life that you happen to know. Uh, there's just something about a good comeback story that wants to, to draw you in and make you want to root for the guy who's had it all and lost it all and is trying to get back on top again. While his story has taken another downward turn over the last uh, couple of years, uh, there's probably no greater comeback story in sports history than the, the comeback of Tiger Woods just a few years ago, a PGA golfer. Even if you're not a sports fan, you probably know the name Tiger Woods. His name has almost been synonymous with golf for the past 25 years, and he's been one of the most dominant athletes in any sport for a lot of that time. He took the world by storm in 1996 when he made his professional debut at just 20 years old after announcing his turning pro with a Nike commercial that simply said, 
Hello World. And then he went on in that first year to become the number one ranked golfer in the world. He won four tournaments. He got his green jacket by winning the Masters, which is one of the greatest golf tournaments in the world. And he just kept going. The wins just kept coming. From about 1999 to 2010, he remained the number one golfer in the world. But somewhere around 2009, 2010, it all started falling apart. The end of 2009, uh, Tiger took a break from golf to work out, quote-unquote, marital issues with his wife. And then just a short time later, the couple announced their divorce because he had been having several adulterous relationships. His golf game continu continued falling apart, and he sunk to number 58 in the world golf rankings. Eventually, he managed to somewhat get back on track just a couple of years later, but then things started turning downwards again. This time, it was back injuries and four back surgeries that left him hurting. It seemed like the old Tiger Woods that had been so dominant for so long was gone for good. Between 2015 and 2018, he wasn't even ranked in the top 1,000 golfers in the world. Like His fall from greatness in the sports world was unparalleled. The sports shows that used to show the, the highlights of his incredible victories were now showing the lowlights of his defeats. And he was the, the laughing stock of late night television. But then he made his way back once again at the 2019 Masters Tournament. And sports fans everywhere were glued to their TVs as Tiger was coming to victory again. And he, he celebrated that victory. He hugged his son. He celebrated his family. And, and sports fans everywhere were watching as one of the greatest comebacks in sports history was coming to fruition. I think one of the reasons that we love comeback stories so much is because in one way or another, we always find a way to see ourselves in those stories. Like there's just something in us that resonates so deeply with the desire to get back what we had when we were on top and when we, what we lost when we know we messed up. But here's the thing though, there's a massive difference between how the world views a good comeback story and how we view our own comeback stories as followers of Jesus Christ. So the world views comeback stories as the result of hard work, determination, maybe a little bit of luck thrown in there, but followers of Jesus view our own comeback stories, if you will, through a different lens because we know that every single comeback is a direct result of God's grace at work in our lives. Whether it's the mending of a broken relationship or our very salvation itself, every comeback we ever experience is completely undeserved and is a direct result of God's grace at work in our lives. And that's what we're going to see this morning in cha Jonah chapter 3. Since Jonah uh, repented in chapter 2, not only are we going to see his comeback from running and rebelling this morning, but we're also going to see the comeback of an entire city who was on a collision course with God's wrath because of their sin. And so here's our big idea this morning, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage of Jonah chapter 3 that'll tie it together for us. It'll be on the screen. Our big idea this morning is this, God is the God of second chances, so we must proclaim his grace to all who will hear. Again, God is the God of second chances, so we must proclaim his grace to all who will hear. See, all along, God's been pursuing Jonah so he could use him for his glory. See, God pursues us not just so we can sit on the shelf as some trophy of God's grace, but so we can be used by him to proclaim the same grace that he's shown to us, so we can then proclaim that grace to the people around us as well. And so in Jonah chapter 3 this morning, I want us to see three reasons to proclaim God's grace. And here's the first one. We should proclaim God's grace because God's grace restores the runner. Because God's grace restores the runner. If you have your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 3, would you look with me at the first uh, verse 1 through the beginning of verse 3? It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, 
Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, if those words sound familiar to you, it's because they should be. The first few words of Jonah chapter 3 are almost identical to the first few words of Jonah chapter 1, but by God's grace at this point, the Jonah of Jonah chapter 3 is very different from the Jonah of Jonah chapter 1. Why? Because of the grace that we've been looking at the last few weeks. We've been following Jonah all along. We got on the boat with him. Remember that? We got on the boat with Jonah. We sat there with him. We were then uh, in the water with him. We sat in the fish with him. Like we know the second chance that he's getting here is not because he's picked himself up by his own bootstraps and turned himself around by his own sheer willpower. We know that's not what's happening here. Now Jonah was set on disobeying God's word and running from God's presence and ignoring God's discipline and then refusing to repent until God brought him to within an inch of his life. So the fact that we're here at Jonah chapter three and we're seeing what's happening right now has very little to do with Jonah and everything to do with God's grace at work in his life. Like, have you seen the trajectory that's been going on? Remember last week we talked about how he was going down and down and down, but God lifted him by his grace, and now here we are as God is restoring the runner. Let's be clear, though, we are not entitled to second chances. It's entirely a matter of God's grace when we get one. Like after all that Jonah did, after what his attitude was towards God, just think of how gracious it is for the word of the Lord to come to Jonah a second time. Like this shows us so much about God's character. Think about it. It would have been really easy for God to uh, just move on to the next prophet in line when Jonah deserted his post and ran. But God showed grace to Jonah and pursued him to include him in what he was doing in God's mission instead of just ignoring him and excluding him and going on about his own business. See, God does not hold grudges against his people. Think about that. God doesn't hold grudges against his own people. Think about how different that is from us. We don't usually have any patience at all for the people that turn their backs on us and betray us. But God is so gracious and patient with us even when we don't deserve it. I think of the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, uh, I, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Well, here's what 2 Peter 3.9 says about that. When we're wandering, when we're running, 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks as God's been patiently disciplining Jonah in order to move him towards repentance, in order to restore him, in order to, in order to pull him back in. We saw Jonah's repentance last week and now we're seeing his restoration because God has been patiently, though very intentionally, moving Jonah towards repentance and now he's restoring and recommissioning his prodigal prophet. Now God doesn't hold grudges towards those who turn from their sin in repentance and turn towards him in faith doesn't hold grudges against his people. In fact, Psalm 103 verses 8 through 13 say this. It says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. It's grace. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
Friends, I haven't done the math on how far the east is from the west, but, but what I can tell you is it is a very long way. That's God's grace at work. And that's why the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It's because of grace. God's been giving Jonah a second chance because God doesn't hold grudges against his people. And so then what, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It, it means that there's grace available to you when you make a mess of your life. It means that as long as you still have breath, you can still be used by God. It means that it doesn't have to be the end of the story when you've messed up as a parent and you feel like you've, you've damaged your relationship with your kids beyond repair. It means that it doesn't have to be the end of the story when you've hurt your spouse so badly that you think your marriage might be over. It means that it doesn't have to be the end of the story when you've sinned in some way that you think you've made a mess of your life and that God couldn't or wouldn't or shouldn't ever use you again. That's not the end of the story. God is in the restoration business for those who are truly repentant. Just humbly come to him with a repentant heart and put yourself at his disposal. Listen, that's not to say that that all the earthly consequences of our past sin will go away or that the things of life won't look a little different than they used to. But God is the God of second chances. There is still hope. He pursues you to restore you and to use you for his glory. And it's not over until he says it's over. Sin in your past is not an excuse to sit on the sidelines and not serve God in the present. So press on through God's grace. That's what Jonah's going to have to do here as he's being restored. He's going to have to press on through God's grace. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Not whatever message Jonah feels like like giving, but the one that God has given him. Let's be clear here. Jonah is just the messenger. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. No more running. God's servant is back on track and ready to obey because God has restored his servant in his grace. I don't know about you, but most children's Bibles or videos that I've seen that I can remember make it look like, uh, like Nineveh is just a short afternoon walk away from where the, the, uh, the fish spit Jonah up. But uh, the reality is that Jonah probably has a long trip ahead of him. Uh, scholars will say that at least he has like a 500-mile journey east here, and that trip would have taken about a month if he was riding a donkey or a camel or something, and, and much longer if he was walking. So Jonah's got plenty of time to spend with the Lord and to reflect on God's grace at work in his life as he's preparing to preach. So the first reason we have to proclaim God's grace is because it restores the runner. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you need to experience that. Maybe you need God's restoration as you've been running from him. But the second reason that we have is because God's grace reaches the rebel. That God's grace reaches the rebel. Would you look back with me at Jonah chapter 3 at the the second half of verse 3 through verse 9. It says this, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. 
and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. A couple of weeks ago when we looked at Jonah chapter 1, we talked about how Nineveh was such an important city in its day and how it was even the, the capital of Assyria at one point in its history. But the text here is making an even bigger deal about really how, how influential Nineveh was. And so, so let's do our best to really get a good, clear picture in our minds of, of what Jonah would have seen and experienced as, as Nineveh was coming into his view, as he maybe rode his camel in through the gates of the city and parked it over by, by the Wawa. Maybe we can get our minds around that. Most historians will tell us that in Jonah's time, the circumference of Nineveh's walls, and for you fellow non-math people like myself, the circumference is the distance around the outside, but the, but the circumference of the city of Nineveh was somewhere between 55 and 60 miles. The walls themselves were about 100 feet wide and wide enough that three chariots could ride side by side by side all the way around them. There were more than 1,500 towers all the way around the perimeter of the city, and the city itself had somewhere between 600,000 and a million people right around this time when Jonah is showing up here. To give us some perspective on this, like no matter where you're from, you probably view New York City as like the big city in our country. Like it is the big city. The circumference of Manhattan Island, where we really think of New York City, is only 32 miles, like half the size of Nineveh. Of course, there weren't buildings as tall as the Freedom Tower or the Empire State Building in Nineveh, but if you've ever been to New York City or even just seen pictures of it, just think of how breathtakingly awesome that New York City skyline is. Just think of uh, of what that would look like in your mind as you've you've maybe been there or seen pictures, and if you've ever been there, uh, you know two things. You know, first of all, it'll make you feel really small, and second of all, that it is overwhelmingly massive, and Jonah had to be feeling a lot of that as Nineveh was coming into view as he was showing up there. Verse 3 says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Some translations include the words to God at the end of that phrase, and the reason that it's an exceedingly great city to God is not because he's impressed by the walls or the towers or its sheer size. No, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city to God because his heart was after those people. The people were on his heart. He cared about these people. Yes, all the way back to chapter 1, their sin has come up before him. His angry about their sin, but he is sending Jonah to these people to proclaim grace to them because he wants them to repent. He's after their hearts. He wants to pull them back towards himself. He wants to draw them to himself. So Jonah, Jonah gets to Nineveh and goes through the gate, and, and this, this city would have taken him three days to walk all the way across, and he starts walking through the city, and I can, I can just imagine him reacting to these shocking sights and sounds and smells and everything he would have experienced. I can imagine not just the anxiety and the, the butterflies welling up in his stomach, knowing what he's about to do as he's about to go preach to these people, but I can imagine the literal fear that he's experiencing, knowing what he probably already knew about these people he's been called to reach. See, Jonah would have known things about these people, like the fact that uh, that they were known for impaling live victims on the poles around the outside of the city and then, and then leaving them there to roast in the hot desert sun. Jonah probably would have known that. He, he knew that, that they were probably known for, uh, for beheading masses of people and then just leaving the skulls by the gates of the city to scare anyone that might have come around. He knew that occasionally they were known for, for skinning people alive. And so, uh, so that was the kind of people that God is sending Jonah to reach. This is what he's being sent to. The thing is, Jonah 
doesn't know how this mission from God will end up. He just knows that God has sent him to these people to go and to proclaim grace, and he is going to obey. Like, death is very much on the table here. Love this perspective from Mark Dever. He's a pastor down in, down in D.C. He, he points out that there's really no such thing as a, a closed country to gospel ministry, or there's no such thing as a country where you can't go and be a missionary. There's just countries where it's harder to preach your second sermon. Like, that's what Jonah is facing here. Verse 4 says that Jonah walked about a day's journey into the city, and then I can imagine him stopping in their Times Square and in the market where most of the people would have gathered. I can see him climbing up on top of some merchant's cart and kind of taking a look around at these people that God has sent him to reach. I can imagine him noticing some kids playing over here in the corner and some merchants arguing about a transaction over on this side, and I can imagine him just taking a deep breath, firing off a quick prayer to God to say, God, I need you in this moment. Would you help me and, and use me for your glory? And then, and then with all the courage he could muster, proclaiming the message that God had given him, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's, that's the sermon. That's the message. Eight words in English, only five in Hebrew. Basically, all he had to say here was, listen, Nineveh, your days are numbered. Now, it's not clear if that's all he ever said to these people, but it at least seems like that's what got the conversation started. Somehow, whether it's just not recorded here, and, and the Ninevites started asking Jonah some questions where they just logically figured out some things on their own, at some point, uh, they come to realize that this coming judgment that this man is proclaiming is at the hands of the Almighty God of the universe. Like, this isn't just some crazy guy screaming in the marketplace. This is serious, and these people need to pay attention. Notice that the tone of Jonah's message here uh, isn't exactly seeker sensitive. It's not to make them feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It's not to puff them up, but it is the specific message that God gave Jonah to stand in the middle of Nineveh and proclaim. It's a description of what happened here and there, but, but it's not necessarily prescriptive for us and how we should share the gospel today. Like, here's what I mean by that. Like, please don't get in your car this afternoon and go down to the docks in Annapolis and stand up and start screaming, uh, yet 40 days and, yet Mar- and Maryland shall be overthrown. Like, that's not, don't, don't, don't do that. But whether it is loudly in public or privately in conversation, we want to communicate clearly and faithfully the whole message of the gospel when we're sharing with other people. See, on one end of the spectrum, some of us, want to avoid the negative, harsh realities about sin and hell and judgment and God's wrath and only focus on the positive aspects of God's love and mercy and grace. Like, I understand that. I get that. That's, that's natural. And nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. We would much rather be the doctor who gets to say, it's a boy or it's a girl or, or, or your blood pressure is improving. We'd much rather be that doctor than the doctor that has to deliver the news of terminal illness. But the doctor who withholds news of terminal illness from his patients is not really being a good doctor at all, no matter how good his intentions might be. You've got to handle the bad news before you get to the good news. At the other end of the spectrum, though, others of us would rather drive home the truth of God's wrath and judgment on sin and then, and then just toss in the message of God's grace at the end like it's nothing more than an add-on that we're contractually obligated to include. In the same way, a doctor who won't stop talking about his patient's terminal illness but barely mentions the fact that there is a cure that is proven and guaranteed to be successful is not a good doctor either. 
He's brutal and unloving at best. He's, he's leaving out the best part. Like, like the hope is found in the good news. The hope is found in the good news of the gospel. And so we must be faithful to the entire gospel message, not just the parts that we're comfortable with, not just the parts we want to lean towards on our own. God's wrath against sin and his grace towards repentant sinners are two sides of the same gospel coin, and we can't proclaim one without the other. We can't proclaim God's wrath to the exclusion of his grace, and we can't proclaim his grace to the exclusion of his wrath. They go together. We need the whole gospel. We've got to have a complete message. We must proclaim that, yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. In other words, we must proclaim that we need a substitute for, our, for the penalty for our sins. But we must also proclaim that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In other words, on one side, we need a substitute. On the other side, we have a substitute. His name is Jesus. Then we just throw open the invitation of God's grace and leave the results to him. And so let me just do that right now. Like if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you need a substitute. You've sinned against God. And there is a punishment for that, a literal, physical place called hell. That's real. On the other hand, God has provided what he has demanded in the perfect substitute for your sins in the person of Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross for you. And salvation is available to you right now if you would repent or turn from your sins and place your faith in him. And if you have any questions about that, I would love to talk with you about that after the service. But Jonah preached his five Hebrew word sermon and then left the results to God. And let me just say, these results to this sermon are incredible. Like it's probably safe to say that there has never been a a sermon preached so short that had such a huge impact so fast. Just look at the results in verse five and how it describes the response. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. That's awesome. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Like revival is happening and it's spreading like wildfire. These people are grieved by their sins and moved towards repentance. Notice that Jonah never specifically mentioned the possibility of deliverance. And it doesn't even say that these people were really expecting to be delivered. They were just so convicted by their sin that they knew they could do nothing else than get on their faces before a holy God and plead for his mercy. Because God's grace was reaching the rebels. It doesn't stop there. It says the message reached the king of Nineveh and he had the same response. Verse six says that when he heard the word, he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Just think of how incredible an example this is of humility when you're truly convicted of sin. This is the king of one of the greatest cities on the planet at this time. And when he sees his sin clearly and is grieved by it, he doesn't try to act all majestic and and try to keep it all together. Royal protocols, all the decorum, it goes out the window at this moment. He doesn't try to flaunt his position and demand a hearing with Jonah or, or try to meet with God as if they're equals. He just gets on his face. He humbles himself and gets down from his throne and takes off his royal robe and puts on sackcloth and then sits in ashes Instead of getting back on his throne, he's being serious about his sin. He even sends out an official decree to start a national fast. He says that like no one, not even the animals, are going to eat or drink. He orders everyone to be in sackcloth and ashes and to spend their time calling out to God in repentance. And like this just shows how serious he is about total repentance. 
The king's basically saying here, he's like, look, I don't care if we lose our economy. I don't care if we all starve to death. Nobody's going to work. Nobody's going to do anything until we do our business with God. Because if we don't deal with God first, we won't have an economy left. We won't, we won't have anything to do. We've got to do first things first. We've got to deal with our sin before God. But he doesn't stop his decree there. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that, in his, that is in his hands. There's got to be some outward change, right? Remember our definition of repentance from uh, biblical counselor, Dr. Garrett Higby last week. We'll put it back on the screen for you again. He says that repentance is a recognition of sin for what it is, followed by a heartfelt sorrow for that sin, culminating in a change of behavior. I'll, I'll read it one more time. Repentance is a recognition of sin for what it is, followed by a heartfelt sorrow for that sin, culminating in a change of behavior. So remember, true repentance affects your mind, your emotions, and your will. That's what we saw with Jonah last week, and it's what we're seeing with these people here in Nineveh. In verse 5, they believed God. It, it affected their mind. They're starting to see things clearly. They're thinking differently. Then they fasted and sat cloth and ashes. It had, it had grieved them and affected their emotions. They were feeling the weight of their sin to their core before a holy God. And then here in verse 8, the king is reminding them that it has to be a, a change of behavior too. You can't just keep going the way you were going and say you were sorry. There's got to be a, a change. These people are truly repenting. God's grace is reaching the rebels. But let's not move past the king's statement here in verse 9. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce angle, his anger so that we may not perish. So we got to be very clear here. See, true repentance does not presume upon God's grace. True repentance doesn't just say sorry to avoid the consequences. It doesn't just go through the motions to get what it wants out of God. No, true repentance comes before God and says, I, I, I know I don't deserve grace. I know I don't deserve a second chance. I know I, I, I don't deserve a, a change of my circumstances, but I want you to know, God, that I am sorry for my sin. And I want to turn. I don't want things to be that way anymore. So I'm just going to throw myself at your mercy. The king is right. Who knows? God might relent. Whatever he would choose to do in that moment would be absolutely right. But when we're truly convicted of sin, the only right response, the only thing we can do is to get on our faces before God and pursue repentance no matter what might happen next. But if we want to be really faithful to proclaim grace, all of this wants to make, should make us want to ask the questions like, why are these people reacting this way? Why was Jonah's sermon so effective? And even more so, like, how can I get my own evangelism? How can I get my own sharing the gospel to be this effective? Like, how can I get my, my, my spouse or my kids or my parents or my friend at work or my friend from college, how can I get them to respond to the gospel the way we see happening here? Well, the answer to those questions isn't a practical one. There's not like f some five tips to make this happen. It's not a practical answer. It's a theological one. The answer isn't found in Jonah's incredible sermon outline or his mastery of apologetics. It's not because he's got a cool, compelling personality or because he's a master communicator either. The answer is found in Romans 1.16. The answer is that it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. 
The answer is that it is God who grants salvation. Remember what Jonah said at the, the end of chapter two last week that I said was the pinnacle of this book. He, he, he declared in the middle of, in the belly of that, that fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. Like it's his business. It's God who's at work here. These people were cut to the heart like we see in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. The only thing that Jonah brought to the table was his obedience and his faithfulness to the message that God had given him to proclaim then he just left the results to God. Friends, that could be so freeing when it comes to your own evangelism. Like, yes, we should strive to clearly present the gospel to everyone around us, but no amount of our own trying harder or communicating better will ever save a single person. Every response to the gospel you will ever see here in in the city of Nineveh and every response to the gospel you ever see in anyone around you will not come as a, as a, a product of your own efforts but because of God's grace at work in their lives. What we see here is an incredible work of God. And you know what? That same God who showed up in Nineveh to redeem by his grace an entire wicked city can still radically save people today. Our responsibility is just to proclaim that grace to be faithful to the message that we've been given, to, to, to fulfill the great commission and leave the, response, the, the results up to him. So are you doing that? Are you walking out your door in the morning with an eye looking to fulfill the Great Commission? An eye looking to point people to Jesus? Will you trust him with the people that are near you, that are on your heart? And will you just do your part to continually point them to Jesus? Keep being faithful and praying, God, would you save these people? Because only you can. We've got to be intentional and look for opportunities to share the gospel with the people around us, and then take those opportunities. We've got to take the time to talk with our unsaved coworkers about more than just their weekend plans, and we've got to take the time to have our unsaved neighbors over for a barbecue and, and point them to Jesus, introduce them to Jesus. So many of us are just holding off, waiting for the quote-unquote perfect opportunity where it's 72.5 degrees outside and there's not a cloud in the sky and there's birds chirping in the background. So many, so many of us are waiting for that perfect moment. Well, guess what? It's not coming. That perfect moment is not coming. The perfect opportunity is whenever you get a chance because that's what God has put you on earth to do, to point people to Jesus and make disciples of him for his glory. If you want to grow in that, here's a simple prayer that you can pray every single morning. You get up in the morning, you're heading out the door to work, and you stop for a second to pray, God, would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel today? would you give me the wisdom to see those opportunities? And would you give me the courage to take those opportunities? You pray that prayer every morning and it will interrupt and change your life. But that's what we've been put here to do. We must proclaim God's grace, number one, because God's grace restores the runner. Number two, because God's grace reaches the the rebel. And very quickly, number three, because God's grace rescues the repentant. Because God's grace rescues the repentant. Look back with me. One last time, just at verse 10 of Jonah chapter 3, it says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's abundantly clear here that the people of Nineveh were sincere in their repentance. But in my own curiosity, I do have to wonder if they started getting a little nervous when it got to be somewhere around day 37 or 38 after, no, after uh, Jonah had preached his 40 days till doom message. 
The text doesn't tell us whether or not there was a follow-up message from God to update these people and where they stood with him. So I, I don't know exactly what they knew. But again, we do know that they knew all they could do was place themselves at the, 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 at, at humbly before God and plead for mercy. And that's exactly what they did. Remember last week when we said that God graciously hears us and responds to us when we call on him with truly repentant hearts. That was our big idea last week from Jonah chapter 2. Well, God in his incredible grace saw what they did. He heard them. He, he, he saw how they were totally and sincerely repentant for their sins and he relented. He showed mercy. He rescued the repentant. And yet again, what a, an incredible reminder of the, the gospel for, that is for us. What an incredible reminder of the invitation that's open to us to run towards grace when we're sensing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Like, yes, while the king in verse 9 said, who knows what will happen, we know exactly what the outcome will be when we run to him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that when you come to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to be saved, he will save you. And when you come to him by grace through faith in Jesus as one who is saved, there is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. He has already paid the price for you. You can run to him in repentance and be welcomed. What an incredible reason that is for us to proclaim God's grace to all who will hear because God's grace rescues the repentant. But it's got to be personal. Nobody else can do that for you. You can't do it for others. You can't repent for your kids or your grandkids or your spouse or your neighbor. See, while the people of Nineveh repented here in Jonah chapter 3 and God spared them, Less than 100 years after the book of, of, of Jonah, it was like nothing had ever happened. The next generation didn't have the same heart towards God that the people here did. So God would send the prophet Nahum to announce the destruction of Nineveh again, but this time they would not repent, and this time that destruction did happen. Because repentance does not transcend generations can't be transferred from one generation to the next. Yes, the foundations for repentance and faith can be laid for future generations and be pointing them towards God's grace. But true repentance and faith has to be a decision that they make for themselves. That should remind us of the urgency of the gospel. It should put before us an urgent reminder to be intentionally investing in and having conversations with our kids and grandkids specifically about the things of God. It should, should lead us to want to go serve and harvest kids where, where, where I like to say it's the greatest unreached people group that we have and you don't have to get on a plane to reach them. Like they won't get saved by just soaking it in, by being around you or hanging around church. We've got to be intentional to point them to Jesus. Friends, we've got so many reasons to proclaim God's grace. He restores the runner. Maybe that was you at one point. He reaches the rebel, and that was all of us for sure. And he rescues the repentant. And if you've never done that, I pray that you would today. I pray that you would experience that. Because here's the reality, friends. God is the God of second chances. We've seen that so clearly both in Jonah and the people of Nineveh. They both got second chances. They were both recipients of grace in their own ways. Are you? Have you received his grace? Will you receive his grace? The invitation is open, but the opportunity for repentance, for second chances will eventually run out. Eventually, all of us will stand before God to give an account for our lives, and there will be no do-overs. There will be no excuses. If you haven't turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, the words that you will hear are, uh, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. And then you will face eternity in a literal, physical place called hell. 
but God's grace is available to you right now through Jesus Christ. So if you've never run towards grace and you've never been truly saved, or even if you have been saved, you have run towards grace, and there's just something going on in your life right now. There's been sin that you've been running from repentance on. Let me very seriously urge you, don't wait another minute. Do it today. Do it now. God is so gracious, but his grace is not a license to sin. Like the people of Nineveh didn't just, uh, didn't trust God and say, you know what, I've got another 40 days till, till something bad happens, so I'm going to live it up for 39 and then I'll get, get things with right later. No, the person who says, I know that God is the God of second chances, so I'm going to live it up now and I'll deal with my sin later, is a person who has no understanding of the seriousness of their sin and the holiness of God. So let's run towards grace together. We're going to take a moment right now as Rebecca's playing to do business with God. I said, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. This would be a great opportunity. Find, there's, there are plenty of people in this room that would love to talk with you about who Jesus is and come down here and find me. But in a room like this, probably the majority of us do know him. We are followers of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we don't need repentance. Repentance is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It is, a, it is something for all of the Christian life to consistently be turning from our sins and returning to the grace that is available to you in Jesus Christ, your Savior. But we can't ignore it. We can't push it to the back of our mind. So I want to just take a few moments. I'm going to be silent and I'll pray in a minute. But take time to examine your lives. Turn towards God in repentance. Run towards His grace. And then I'll close in a minute. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched us and known us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, you discern our thoughts from afar. You search out our paths and our lying down and are acquainted with all our ways. Even before a word is on our tongues, behold, O Lord, you already know it altogether. You hem us in behind and before you lay your hand upon us. Where shall we go from your spirit? Where shall we flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. 
know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, that's our prayer this morning. Would you help us draw us towards repentance? Help it to not be something that we ignore or push to the back of our minds or postpone for later. But as we saw in the people of Nineveh, as your message was proclaimed and your spirit fell and they were humbled by the weight of their sin, help us to see the seriousness of our sin. Help us to not just see the seriousness of our sin, but also the the greatness of your grace and to run towards your grace. It's not a decision we can make in a moment. It's a work of your spirit in our hearts and God. So would you be doing that now? Would you be working in our hearts to change us, to grow us, to sanctify us, to make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ, our redeemer. That's our prayer. That's our hope. It's your promise. That's not something we can do on our own. We need you. So do your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.